0: Open up with me, if you would, this morning to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 will be our primary text, verses 1 through 7, Communion Sunday. Our Hebrews series continues under the title, True Tent. True Tent. Those words are taken from the second verse of Hebrews 8 that describes aspects of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ that is yet ongoing in the heavenly places. This is profound as we read, and I think as we challenge our minds to comprehend with the Spirit's help this morning, we will grow in our understanding of not just how the gospel is a vehicle from point A to point B that is now until glory, but the gospel, in fact, defines the glory itself and the heavens themselves. And what we look forward to at the end of this life, they thrive and they, uh, they glow and they are alive with the majesty of God continuing to be revealed by the truth of Jesus Christ and His finished work on Calvary. So with that introduction, if you have your Bible with you open to Hebrews chapter 8, would you stand with me and let us read these words together. Again, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Here we have the never-failing word of Christ, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. promises. This is the word of God. You may be seated. What an indispensable joy and support and encouragement the scriptures are to us as we seek to grow in our understanding of basic concepts that you may think you know quite well, but it's easy to get an idea in our experience And in the books we read and just popular culture of what some theological truth is and for a while there uh, maybe have a trajectory in our mind of misunderstanding that needs to be corrected from time to time with the scriptures. I find the idea, the concept, the truth, the reality of heaven itself to be something exactly along those lines. Perhaps a, perhaps a corrective word from Scripture, specifically in Hebrews chapter 8, is indispensable for us to remind us of the essence and the ground and the biblical truth of what heaven actually is. This message is titled, True Tent. And we see this term, True Tent, referred to in verse 2, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Which raises the question, what is this true tent? Well, that's a term that refers to the holy places. Earlier in the context, we see in verse 26, the necessary qualifications for Christ, our high priest, included that he must be separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So there is a situation or a place. There is a reality of the ongoing work of Christ that is described as the majesty or the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Chapter 8, verse 1, the holy places. And then also the true tent. So, how is it that the heavens, the high place or the holy places above the heavens, indeed, how is it that that idea of glory is also a true tent? That will be the primary thrust of this morning's message, seeking to understand the author's take on what we can expect in the future and how it relates to the tabernacle of old. The idea of heaven is wildly popular, I would submit to you, in our world today. Our passage in Hebrews will enable us to discern whether the delightful imaginations of our day where daydreamers and those who kind of imagine different things and use their mind to scheme and kind of get that faraway look in your spiritual eyes of what the afterlife might be like. Our passage today is useful to see if those popular notions of what heaven might be like, or what I hope it will be like, or I'll bet you it is like, are accurate and biblical. Even in the Christian community these days, the associations that we have in our heart and our mind with the eternal bliss, the happy ever after of eternal life, may often prove self-absorbed, superficial, and distorted. Especially when we compare them to what the Word of God describes the heavens are actually like. The heavens, according to Hebrews, are a profound reality. They're not just our imaginations running wild, fulfilling our greatest dreams and happiest thoughts. We may, in our minds as we think of heaven, be only imagining our happiest moment in lifetimes like a million in our dreams, throw in some angels, some scenery, hanging out with Jesus, just like we saw him in Hollywood's latest effort to pander to faith-based media consumers, and that's really all that we have in our consciousness. At first glance, these vivid pictures and even testimonies from those who've had you know, so-called near-death experiences and so on, they, they may seem harmless, even faith-building. But let us be careful, brothers and sisters. Let us be careful to note that Hebrews, with other, the rest of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, teaches us the eternal state, what it's actually like. And it compels us to recognize... That it is a redeemed, it's a reality that the redeemed share. That it's fully manifest reconciliation with a holy God. Heaven is fully manifest reconciliation with a holy God. And as such, heaven is a theologically rich and precise reality. And I would remind you, it is always a principle, there is nothing valuable in a counterfeit. Something that is portrayed as a counterfeit really has no value. The essence of what truly heaven is like, that's the riches. That's the faith-giving truth. That is the encouraging hope that we have to look forward to. Consummate, redemptive history is realized in the true tent that is the heavens according to Holy Scripture. So let us explore what Hebrews chapter 8 would tell us then about this true tent under the heading. The true tent is set apart by the following. The true tent is set apart first by consummate situation. Secondly, by consummate operation. And thirdly, consummate intention. Three basic words there, situation, operation, and intention. Situation is a place or an environment, if you will. It is the necessary conditions fulfilled for something particular to take place. And this was true of the tent of meeting of old that we have in the tabernacle, and it's true of the heavens even now. And this, under our first point, therefore, is consummate situation. Let me expand that word consummate just briefly. In Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, we read the following. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So you see by degrees of elevation that the high priest that we have so far surpasses the prior order and any individual that was called by God for a prophetic role, a mediatory role for the people of God, that it's reached its apex, its climax, its conclusion, its fulfillment. And that's what that word Consummate means. Christ is the consummate high priest. He is, verse 2, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. If we jump down to verse 6, we have in the Greek, as it's translated, more excellent, a similar word. But as it is, verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent, or you could say perhaps consummate, then the old, as the covenant he mediates, is better since it is enacted on better promises. Turn back briefly with me to chapter 1, verse 4. We have this, excuse me, in the original language, the same Greek word appearing, and it's translated similarly as well. Hebrews 1, verse 4 says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. There's that word again, more excellent, or the word in Greek, deaforos or something, deaforos, which is translated more excellent. If you look in the lexical sources, you find it means different in kind and surpassing in excellence or perfection. It's a different kind and it's far beyond what preceded it. That's the idea of this term, more excellent. This term is similar to others in Scripture. When we see the word appointed and when we see the word perfection, we should think of the same in Scripture. Remember, we were talking briefly in prior messages about the term teleos or teleological. It means by design or fulfilled according to its purpose. And that's what the Scriptures are referring to time and again thematically in Hebrews, that there is a more excellent reality. There is a surpassing glory. There is an incredible truth, there is a climax, a crescendo, an eschatology, if you will, an end times, a future, a hope, and the apex, the highest order that is in view when we think of the finished work and ongoing work of intercession of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The true tent, that true place of meeting, that true place of communion, it is set apart by its consummate situation. Let us explore a little bit what is in the back of the context of our text today. Turn over with me a page to Hebrews 9. And notice in verses 1 through 5 that there is a pre-incarnate situation to which the author refers. Pre-incarnation. That is, before Jesus came, there was a different order. There was a different tent. Listen to it as our author expounds. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. There it is. That idea of situation or conditions meant, uh, met to be reconciled, to be in fellowship and communion with the holy God. Verse 2, here's the term. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Beyond the, the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, and so on. And so we see here the language and the reference from the Old Covenant that is in view behind the context of Hebrews. Moving on in the same chapter, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, though the greater through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So you see here, we're getting closer to the historical situation that we are to recall when we think about the tabernacle and what it represented. To get an even better idea or add a little bit to this study, turn me with me to Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus 33, there's a great summary statement in the law of what the tabernacle, the place of meeting, represented for God's people. And what it continued to be for them. And so long as they were a healthy people, honoring the Lord and on solid footing, they honored this aspect of their life together, their worship together. And when it was lost, so were they. Exodus 33, verse 7, we read the following. Now Moses used to take the tent, and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door, and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. Verse 9. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. That is the pre-incarnation situation. That was the closest, if you will, man could get to God. There was a real abiding presence in that situation under those conditions where a man, a sinner, could commune with God face to face. The conditions were so desirable that those who understood it for what it was did not want to leave. And that's how Moses... And Joshua are described in this situation. Could you imagine being there? Often we do. We think how amazing that would have been. And then ask yourself, could you even imagine then that there would come a situation in the future that would infinitely exceed those parameters? Well, Hebrews tells us that there in fact is. When we read that as Christ and his ministry has been fulfilled, even superior to Moses, the angels, and all that went before, That is, that he has or obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So there we have a little bit of the background of this consummate situation. It's helpful to see the power that the mediation, that the union, that the reconciliation, that the tabernacle represented had in the the pre-incarnation era of God's people in Israel at the time. But now let's move on to the even better, the post-incarnation situation. What is different after Christ comes? And here we get back to our text this morning in Hebrews chapter 8, and this is what is being described. A tent after Christ has come, a new order and a new high priest serving in that order is a reality. Listen to the difference. Now, the point in what we are saying, again, one, is this. We have such a high priest, one who is, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Is the tent a simple, relatively simple, though by, the, though by those days standards, ornate and well done and well put together? Is the tent that we have today greater than this small uh, area, portable meeting place? outside the camp, and remember, it was there to service two million people. It could only be done representatively. Two million people couldn't fit inside that structure. Uh, It was absolutely impossible. Even if there was a rotation, they couldn't, and they didn't meet the qualifications. All these things were inherent limitations. That would be troubling or ought to be troubling to us. Is there a way, the Israelite, the faithful, might ask, The average individual is right. Is there a way I could share the experience that Moses has when he communes with God face to face? Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 gives us the answer, yes. And it gives us a different tent. The answer is in Christ and the new tent, the place of Christ dwelling and interceding for us is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Is there enough room in the heavens for all of the elect? Amen. Yes, there is. We see the dimensions later in Revelation. We'll close with one of those texts. The place is huge. The schematics that are delivered to us indicate that there is absolute space and room and intimate communion with all of the saints, with God in this glorious habitation. That's the new tent. That's the place of meeting. That is what is possible in Christ. He is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The post-incarnation situation. This is is true, and we, we read it in Scripture. This is what we have to look forward to, what we experience a taste of now. It's the consummate surpassing in excellence and perfection tabernacle or place of meeting we have in Christ the promise of ultimate communion between God and man. And it's realized upon his high priestly work, which includes redemption and atonement, intercession and sacrifice, and perpetual priestly ministry on our behalf, even as we read in 725. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's that tabernacle place or reality that we're reading there, drawing near to God through him. And we can do so because he, as our high priest, ever lives to make intercession for us. Finally, under consummate situation, we find that the author, the builder, the author and finisher, if you will, is God himself, no mere man. Again, verse 2. Speaking of Christ, he is described as a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The message here to the old in faith and prophecy would have been, there is coming a tent that will transcend this one, that is not made under the uh, by the craftsmen of the day and under the tutelage of Moses. And it's not mere fabric and the best of precious metals and our hammering and in all of the detailed artisanship that we can come up with will produce. There is coming a time when as beautiful and careful as we, uh, 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 carefully as we made this place, it will be so far transcended that we can't even imagine this is the place that the Lord sets up, not man. David had a dream that a temple would be built. He had a dream he would love to be the one to build that temple. God denied him that privilege, but his son enjoyed it. Solomon crafted a superior structure in many ways to the tabernacle. And now the temple is beautiful. Later on, the temple, in its uh, just sheer scope architecturally, exceeded Solomon's standards, it seems, in history. But each one of these representations in physical form was nothing, it was a type, a shadow, it was a symbol, it was something that we could see but never could be the ultimate reality. But ought to point to something, it ought to have pointed to something that would come later, something that could only be built, only be accomplished, and only be sufficiently supplied through Jesus Christ. All of this is contingent on his priesthood. As we look to the Scriptures, we see even in Exodus 20, I was reading to my kids this week, we were going over the Ten Commandments again. And as the Ten Commandments are delivered in Exodus 20, the Lord, as if to seal the delivery of them, and indeed I think that's the case, He reveals Himself as a God who has the power to judge. In other words, if an authority delivers His edict, His mandate, and he has no power to enforce it, then his word is not worth all that much, is it? If you were to deny it, there would be no consequences. Well, on the opposite side, conversely, if the authority has the power to follow up his word with omnisciently knowing whether you followed it or not, and omnipotently, with all power, bringing justice accordingly, he might reveal it like this, verse 18 of Exodus 20. Now when all the people saw while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. These words, these commandments, Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not have any other gods before me, make, do not make unto me any graven image, do not take my name in vain, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, honor your father and mother and all the rest. They would one day be reposited within the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. But when they were delivered, it came with this exclamation point of sovereignty and God's power to judge in lightning, trembling, thunder, earthquake, and darkness. And when the people saw it, they cried out. They cried out for a mediator. Someone to go near to God for them because they feared they would be struck dead if they went alone. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in the new covenant... We have a better mediator than Moses. Moses was faithful in all God's house. We read in Hebrews 3 verse 5. As a servant to testify of the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence. And our boasting in our hope. The assurance that the true tent. The surpassing tent was set up by God not men, and it is indwelt, or it is, the ministry that takes place in this place of meeting is Christ and His high priesthood, not men, is the assurance that through Christ we can have free access to the Father, and we no longer have to cry out in anguish for a mediator hoping against hope that Moses won't fail us. Moses did fail the people of God. He did not enter the promised land. Solomon... He failed the people of God. All of the faithful listed in Hebrews 11, not one of them had the sinlessness to be Messiah. All were sinners. All had fallen short of the glory of God, as every last child of Adam has. Today, man still cries out for a mediator. He can't get away from it. This postmodern, secular, whatever kind of culture we Fancy ourselves in being as if we've progressed beyond the point of those old, archaic, religious notions. You can't get beyond it. Last weekend when my wife and I were taking some time in Duluth, we stopped in for, an, uh, uh, stopped in for sushi at, at a place um, in Duluth. And first thing I noticed was just gigantic, ugly Buddha on the other side of the room, six or eight feet tall. And you've seen him you know, the obese dude sitting cross-legged, bowing over slightly, and you think, "What? what is this? You know, if I was going to make a religion, I don't think I'd have my figurehead be that weird weird idol. The And as I look closer at Buddha, his lap was piled with cash, just dollar bills. I mean, people were going, you could easily reach up and grab it if you wanted to, but there was a pile of coins and Dollar bills, and some of them were shoved in his hand, and all this stuff. And so I just asked the waitress, "Hey, what's the significance of the lap full of money over on Buddha there?" And I, well, I, I I don't know. She said, "I, I suppose uh, people give some money for Buddha to give them good luck." And it just struck me, what ancient paganism is this? What idolatry still exists among us? We still think that we we still think that we can reach out to all these. Uh, other ways to try to get some good luck. And it was a symbol to me that man has not moved beyond the idolatry that the Ten Commandments condemns. Other examples, they're all around us. If you study a little bit about ISIS, the Islamic State over there in the Middle East, there's a man who leads it, I think his name is Allah something, Bengdadi or whatever. And this guy was appointed by his own men to be the leader of this caliphate state. And his guys told him, I read this article, they said, hey, if you don't take the position, we will kill you. Because you have the necessary qualifications, you have the land, you have the moral authority in our perverse religion to be that figurehead. Why? And, and there it is, again, man desires a mediator. Man desires somebody to go before him to assure his salvation, his right standing, to give him some future, some hope. ISIS hopes that they will reach some state of peace or some state of security or salvation, however perverse it may be. And you can tell by these two examples the foolishness of trusting anything else to put us in right standing or to give us hope for our future. A gold Buddha with money in his lap can't do it, and a warmongering pervert in the Middle East can't do it. No one can, not the most noble even among us, only Christ, only Christ. And this is the true tent situation. The true tent is inhabited by the high priest, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the only mediator. And he is the one to whom we can cry when we fear the judgment of the Lord to go before us because he took that judgment on himself. Praise his holy name. Secondly, major point this morning, the true tent is set apart by its consummate operation. On this I'll touch on more briefly because these points are expounded later on. But our author begins to introduce them in anticipation of what will be unfolding. Verses 3 and 4 of Hebrews 8 again. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So now it's speaking of the operations within the tent, if you will. You see, some of us think that the gospel, as I briefly mentioned before, might be just a vehicle to get us from point A to point B. We believe the gospel so that we can go to heaven someday. And sometimes, in ha- and sometimes when we think of heaven, we might just imagine like something like free time at summer camp, right? Uh, no rules, and, and finally we can enjoy what we want. And yes, there's no more sin, there's no more sorrow and all this, but there's something more that Hebrews is teaching us. Heaven is a gospel reality. There is an order, and there is an appropriate hierarchy ongoing in heaven. Heaven is not some kind of a free-for-all, everybody just having a good time like Care Bears sliding on rainbows. It's pro- it, it is a glorious, reverent, and holy place where god is displayed in reverent and glorious terms beyond any revelation that we have seen thus far and the angels cry holy and the elders cast their thrones or their their crowns before his throne and the creatures cry out in songs of worthy is the Lamb. And it seems that the environment and the order of that place is such that all who inhabit it are so compelled by the holiness and the reverence and the beauty and the reality of salvation that all they can do is cry forever and without end. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Do you see that there is a consciousness of the gospel And it's reality securing their eternal bliss that yet goes on forever, perpetually in heaven. This is the consummate operation or the ongoing truth of the gospel in glory. First of all, we find that there is an appointed aspect to the one who's called to serve just like the high priests of old. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Appointed, again the author reminds us, is presupposing qualifications. One is appointed who actually can do the job. Only one person could. Only one high priest is qualified. Who did we need? 7.26 tells us a few verses previous. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. So who would be appointed? The high priest who would fulfill these conditions. Holy, innocent, unstained. "...separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He had no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The presupposed qualifications of the high priest who would be appointed had to be absolutely without blemish and without stain, just like the Passover lamb of old prefigured. No spots, no imperfections." No sin, no hint of an inclination or a predisposition to the unholy in any way. Innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He and only he could be appointed for this role of the true tent, where he would serve as high priest. The law appointed people. There was appointments of old. Verse 28 tells us, chapter 7, for the law appoints men, but what kind of men? "...appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests. So the law appointed weak, that is, frail sinners, as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The old order qualified the priesthood according to the Levitical law. And provisionally, men who were sinners and had and were fraught with weaknesses like the rest of us would make atonement for their sins and then for the people. Could not ultimately satisfy. But there was a second appointment, and this is in accordance with the true tent. And this was the word of the oath. This is when God swore in Psalm 110 by himself that you, speaking to the future Messiah, the son of David, Jesus Christ, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And that sovereign covenantal act appointed the high priest who is eminently qualified to sufficiently mediate, who is holy, unstained, innocent, separate from sinners, and exalted in the heavens. And so the true tent is set apart by its consummate appointed high priest. Today I have begotten you, the scriptures say. Today I, you could just as well say appointed you. If you look at the language, when you see the apostles talking about the term begotten and ascribing it to Christ, it has that idea of fulfilled and appointed. At a particular time in the fullness of historical redemptive history, Jesus would accomplish perfectly what the high priest prefigured and could never do ultimately before. Also, offerings. It says in our text in verse 3, every high priest is appointed to do something to offer gifts and sacrifices gifts and sacrifices anticipate a developing theme in Hebrews in the true tent it is set apart by the nature of the gift and the sacrifice that the high priest Jesus Christ offers what does he offer he offers what is pictured before us this day his shed blood and his broken body in weeks uh, in future Months and weeks, we will go over these at greater length, but just to touch upon them again. In Hebrews 9, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats, that's the old tent, and calves, but by means of his own blood. That is the gift and sacrifice. That is the gift and sacrifice offered by our high priest, his own blood that secures an eternal redemption. An eternal redemption that will bring us in perfect fellowship in him in heaven one day. Hebrews goes on to hammer this point home. For then, in verse 26, same chapter, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world as it is. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. Chapter 10 verse 10. He abolishes the first order. What's the first order? That's the old tent. What does it replace with? The true tent. These are ideas that are symbolic and related. In verse 10, he says, uh, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, he abolishes the first order to establish the second. The second order uh, is revealed as a sacrifice, as a place of sacrifice and meeting and offering work of the high priest wherein he offers his own body. And finally, in verse 19, same chapter. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. There we are in this verse. We have confidence. We don't have fear like those of old in Exodus 20. Please do it for us, Moses. We have confidence to enter the holiest holiest of places, which is ultimately speaking, that true tent, the new heavens and the new earth, Heavenly, the eternal state, the glorious future that we have in Christ. We have confidence to enter that holy place because of the blood of Jesus. And approaching the gates of that great city would be far more fearful than approaching Mount Sinai, ringing with a thousand trumpets from the heavenlies to display the power of God. When we stand before the great judgment seat of Christ, that same fear for the unredeemed, will absolutely paralyze them as they stand in God's holy presence. But there is another group, and the reaction is entirely different. Somehow, some way, we know how, through the blood of Jesus Christ, they have confidence, pleading His blood and work, to enter that holy place by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. Once again, with reference to his offering, his gift and sacrifice, his spilled blood, and his torn flesh. Finally, again in Hebrews chapter 8, it reminds us of the new order. As it's referred to earlier, the order of Melchizedek. It says, by way of clarification, in verse 4, Now if he, speaking of Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. This is so important to see. If you were expecting that your hope would be contained in this earth and this old system, if you're interested in continuing with the Judaizers, not to see the finished work of the Messiah and the consummate reality of the true tent, then you must understand that if that order remained and was the criteria that called the shots of reconciliation, Jesus Christ himself would be no priest at all. And you would be cursed perpetually with the insufficiency of the old order. But that is not the case. Since those priests have been transcended by another and their office is fulfilled in Christ. Verse five, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Talks about Moses erecting the tent as he was instructed by God. But again, verse six, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent, consummate than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Thus, in its operations in the true tent, we see because of who is appointed and what he is offering on our behalf and the order that we have such a hopeful future. Have you ever struggled with doubts about Christianity generally thinking boy, it would be easier to have faith to be alive when Christ was walking this earth in the flesh. Sometimes I've struggled with that in the past. Doubts based on what feels like a temporal alienation from the incarnate Christ. Yes, Christ, God, became a man, dwelt among us, but I have not experienced that. I have to trust the record here in God's word in order to have the faith that that actually happened. So how can I be as assured as those who would have been there? And that might be something that would fill us with doubts. It's important to recognize that this not only is this situation of Christ going before us into the tent of meeting, one that is not cause for concern or for fear or for doubt, but it was absolutely necessary for the gospel to be fulfilled. Our, verse, our verses, our text tells us today that if Christ remained on earth, that the work of the gospel would be incomplete. He must ascend. He must seat at the right hand of the Father. He must indwell the true tent, the ultimate tabernacle, the heavenly places. John 16 was so comforting this week for me because Christ is telling his disciples, I am going to leave, but it is actually to your advantage. And he promises, moreover, that he will send uh, God in the Holy Spirit to be with us as our comforter in the meanwhile. But we see in Hebrews more of what Jesus was saying revealed to us. One reason it is to our great advantage that he would go is because it is necessary that he mediate in the holy place in the true tent And he then consequently is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. In closing this morning, I'd like to draw your attention to consummate intention, the future, the fact that this was planned, that this was not plan B, but this was something that God had in mind since before the world began, and you see it unfolding in glorious ways in Scripture. Let us read, first of all, again, Hebrews 8, verses 5 through 7. And then I have an illustration that I hope will help you. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, speaking of the old order of the priesthood. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And here we see uh, the occasion to look for a second. There was a future that the old covenant order looked forward to, and there was an unfolding reality in the Scriptures. Do any of you remember those pictures, and first of all, you look at them and it looks something like kaleidoscopic, you know, kaleidoscope geometric shapes or random just bitmap dots. And the instructions were, look at the end of your nose, kind of adjust your eyes, look at this apparently random pattern. And if you get the right focus, all of a sudden a 3D image will pop off the page and you will see what this computer has generated hidden behind the first glance. Is anyone familiar with those, those 3D images? For me, as I was thinking about it this last week, I thought that is a great analogy when we look at Scripture. On first glance, Scripture may seem disconnected and you wonder why is this recorded or that recorded. But as you look closer and as the Holy Spirit gives you focus beyond the surface level glance you begin to see something more beautiful, more amazing because of its multifaceted dimensional character than any mere two-dimensional painting could ever give you. Anything else, even if it's a commentary on Scripture, is merely a two-dimensional understanding, if you will, of what is truly there. But when the Spirit opens our eyes to understand in depth what Scripture actually is saying, the contours of redemptive reality jump off the page and are absolutely amazing. Here's a question for you. And I'll, form it, or, and I'll put it in the form of a quote. Herman Witsius, he was a covenant theologian, Puritan. He uh, made this interesting observation of Scripture God created the whole world in six days, but he used 40 days to instruct Moses about the tabernacle. Little over one chapter was needed to describe the structure of the entire world, but six were used for the tabernacle. You see what he's getting at here? In just six days, the Lord made, by the word of his power, all of material reality. Yet the Lord spoke to Moses for 40 straight days on instructions for the tabernacle. Isn't that interesting? What does that tell us? Secondly, he notes, similarly, that in this As we're looking at Scripture, what might seem counterintuitive to us ought to be a hint that there's more there than we get at first glance. It says, in just six days, Herman's observation is God created the world. but Or or just uh, one chapter, God recorded the creation of the world, but six whole chapters are used for the creation of the temple. And as we go back to those, you can read them in the books of Exodus and Thereabouts, we have a record of the construction, the craftsmanship, the consecration, the organization, preparation, outfitting, the beauty of all the different aspects the plants and the uh, figure, uh, all of the uh, carved things that would garnish the gold and the loops and the hooks and all of the fabric and the different sections, the rooms in the proper order, the ceremonial washing and all the vestments that the priests would wear before they could go into this portion and then the following, provisions for the court, and what kind of sacrifices for which specific sins, if you add all the tabernacle worship. It is a huge category of understanding in the scriptures. This is a pattern in the Exodus. And it's interesting to ask the question, why? If we turn to Exodus chapter 40, it's the climax of this book, and we can see something Coming to the fore. Turn with me there if you would. And perhaps we'll see the answer to this question. Why is so much time in Scripture devoted to these details? Jumping off the page as the Spirit gives us focus. Exodus 40, 34. Again, now we have the conclusion of this book. And listen to what is stated. Then, and this of course is after the construction of the whole tabernacle. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the lord filled the tabernacle and moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys wherever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle the people of israel would set out but if the cloud was not taken up then they did not go out or set out till the day that it was taken up For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. There is a pattern here. There is a message here in what is recorded. This right here, the abiding presence of God in communion with His people is the climatic moment that all of Exodus is building to. I submit to you the careful details and schematics and all the painstaking obedience that was taking place in the construction of the tabernacle was meant to teach us that God has a future where after everything is ordered according to his intention and plan in all history, it's moving to the end where he will be reconciled with his people. This is a pattern. It's the gospel in the architecture of the buildings of old that were the places that represented God's work of redemption with his people. There is a movement in scripture from sin and slavery unto ruling and reigning and, of, in glory, of being downtrodden in the dust of our depravity unto glorification with him. And this is a message that is being conveyed. This idea, this intention, this direction, this shape of history, if you will, is picked up as a pattern in Hebrews as well. This consummate intention of God revealing Himself in this way and reconciling Himself to His people by taking, through the course of redemptive history, every painstaking effort to do so is expounded in Hebrews over and over again. It's in our text this morning. Our author says, Now the point in what we are saying is this we have such a high priest one who fulfilled all those conditions one who came at the perfect time one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high this was something that was spoken of at the very beginning our author gives us a sneak peek he does a you know there really should be a spoiler alert at the beginning Because this is what he opens, he comes right out of the gate saying in Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, speaking of Christ. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the plan of God that's unfolding. And as Hebrews begins to... Uh, Unfold even in the shape of the text of this book, you see what the climax is as we move along. Just a couple references to underscore that. Chapter 10, verse 19, right before there's a shift to application, the author says the following. As we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we've read this, but by the new and living way that he has opened to us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and then verse 22 begins to shift to application. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So upon the fullness of redemption realized, then there's that shift in the text to, this is the glorious truth of how God is revealing himself. Now walk in light of it. He does it again after a brief excursus or interjection with the Hall of Faith chapter in verse 11, and then in chapter 12, verses 22, and a couple following, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. Listen to this, saints. This is the climax, just like the book of Exodus. This is the crescendo of Hebrews. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is what we have in our future. This is is what we are moving towards. And this is the great note of victory and conclusion in the book of Hebrews and in the entire canon itself. This is a pattern in Exodus, a pattern in Hebrews, and a pattern in Revelation. Last passage this morning, turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. You'll recall John's vision begins to unfold in glorious beauty. He says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Does that does that not remind you of provisional tent language? The old earth and heaven will pass away. Why? Because they're the old tent. They were what God provisionally used to reveal a little bit by little bit himself to us, but now they are about to be surpassed. They are different in kind and surpassing in excellence and perfection, though there is even here continuity. And this is the idea in Revelation as the words continue to unfold before us. And we see, for instance, in verse 22, description like this. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. There's your tent. There's your temple. It is the Lamb, the Almighty God. Verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You remember at the conclusion of Exodus when, as we just briefly read, the glory of God comes and down as a cloud and rests upon the place of the meeting and communion with God's people where reconciliation is possible? It's happening again. It's happening in our future. The glory of God shines in the place where all the conditions are met for perfect reconciliation with the people of God. It's the pattern not just of Exodus, not just of Hebrews, not just of Revelation, but indeed all of cosmic history. Verse 24, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anybody who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the consummate intention of history, God revealing Himself, and the future of the redeemed. This is the true tent that we have to look forward to. This is the true tent of our corporate habitation in the future. This is amazing. Revelation 21 on into 22 describes the priestly habitation which is surrounded, it's filled, it's glowing, it's radiating with the effervescence of glory filling the new Jerusalem. The realm of God's presence and it's manifestly realized in fullness as the mediation of the Lamb, our high priest Jesus Christ as he commands the consummate purpose in all of history and fulfills it in himself and shines forth in his being in this place where we need no sun because of the indwelling and the dwell or the and the manifest presence of god shining so brightly that it will illuminate our future forever this is the infinitely surpassing glory the former can only be described as a shadow and light of this glorious truth. Here at the table of the Lord this morning, saints and members of the household of God, here at the table of the Lord, we remember and proclaim the gift and sacrifice offered by our high priest, Jesus Christ, his very own body and blood. We celebrate it here this morning. And we will celebrate it in the place I just described, where they sing day and night. In fact, there is no night. Day unto day, worthy is the Lamb. Let us transition in prayer. O Holy Spirit, we thank you that the promise of Jesus Christ, our Lord, is fulfilled when you came upon his ascension to dwell, to comfort, to guide, to convict, to lead us into truth. What a glorious reality in light of what you have promised and the surety of those promises, Lord, that you swore to yourself to fulfill, that were purchased at the expensive cost, immeasurable, Lord Jesus, by any value standard, the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord, you have purchased our future. And so we glorify and praise you. I pray, Lord, this morning that as these elements are tasted on our lips That the reality of redemption would be tasted afresh in our hearts. And that we would march forward confidently knowing that you have prepared a place for us. And that place is a glorious one indeed. A true tent where we dwell cleansed free from our sin. By the power of the blood represented in this meal forever and ever. Reconciled with the holy God. Joining Lord Jesus the saints that have gone before. And the ones who will come after singing forever, Lord Jesus, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We thank you for these truths. Bind us together by them, these cords that cannot be broken, we pray, dear Jesus, in your holy name we pray, amen.